If you haven't heard, my wife and I are up for two Webby Awards for Best Podcast Writing this year. We couldn't be more excited. But we need your vote for the People's Voice Award before April 19th. If you voted already, thank you so much. If not, please consider going to vote.mythpodcast.com and choosing Myths and Legends. We're neck and neck with some tough competition for first place. So please, vote and share. Go to vote.mythpodcast.com. Also, I received some pronunciation help this week. The name of Josh's country is pronounced Mali, not Mali. Unfortunately, I received the help after this week's episode was finished, so it'll be fixed for next week. All right, on with the show. This week on Myths and Legends, we're continuing with the story of Sundiata, a medieval West African epic. And you'll see that witches need some serious acting lessons. And also, which board games will kill you? On the Creature of the Week, you'll see why studying veterinary medicine, more specifically dragon brain surgery, might be the best and worst decision you'll ever make. This is Myths and Legends, episode 106b, Bad Move. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories that you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on Myths and Legends, Jata was conceived by supernatural circumstances with the king's second wife, Sogolon. After the king died, first wife Sasma schemed to put her own son, Dankaran, on the throne because, at eight years old, Jata still couldn't walk. Spurred by anger, Jata finally stood and, literally, took steps toward becoming the king he was always destined to be. King Dankaran sat tall and straightened his royal clothes. The sons of the kings of Tabon, Sibi, and more were expected at any moment, and this was his first official meeting as king with other royalty. Needless to say, he was nervous. At last, the time came, and the time passed. Dankaran looked to his ministers. The old men shrugged. They had no idea where the princes were. The court sent servants to fetch an update and to see if they'd been waylaid on the road. Soon, the servants returned but refused to speak in front of the king, wanting, instead, to share with the ministers in private. After five long minutes, the ministers returned, wringing their hands as they nervously addressed the king. The princes were not coming to see him after all. The king was confused. None of them were coming to Mali? The ministers paused. Well, that was the thing. They were coming to Mali. They were in Mali, actually. They just weren't coming to see him. They were here to see Jata. Word spread quickly after Jata had stood and bent the iron rod. Jata moved quickly. Having spent eight years on the ground, he bounded with unprecedented and newfound strength. He learned to hunt and quickly received the title of Simbon, or Master Hunter. Sogolon, his mother, realizing that she was actually raising the child of prophecy that she always hoped she was, imparted to him the knowledge of magic. Jata's griot never left him either, and the young man continued giving him the education worthy of kings. Jata had gone from being a laughingstock to the hunting buddy every mother wanted alongside her son, just so that they could say when they were old that they had hunted alongside Sogolon Jata. While he used the name his father had given him, he went by his mother's name, and in taking back the name the queen mother had used to shame him, 
Sokolanjata rose above and wore it with pride. Over time, it shortened down to Sunjata, but in our story, we'll keep calling him Jata since that's how we began. While Jata thrived, King Dankaran languished. He was surrounded by his elderly advisors and was now 18, a man in his own right, but it was an open secret who really wielded the true power in the kingdom. Sasma could see her grip slipping away with every step Jata took. Desperate, she steeled herself and summoned the nine witches of Mali. She wouldn't have heard them if they didn't want her to. Sasma woke with a start, shot up in bed, and took in the 18 eyes staring back at her from the darkness. The nine witches of Mali stood surrounding her bed. Sasma, though likely deeply creeped out that nine witches had appeared in her bedroom, didn't show it. Instead, she boldly asked the witches who ruled the night, the nocturnal powers who could put an end to life, to help her. She needed to kill Jata, son of Sogolon, while she still could, before he grew any stronger. In return, she could supply them with grains, cows, rice, and hay. The old woman in the middle laughed. Life hung by a fine thread. The queen's hate had a cause, but so must Jata's death. They would need more of a reason than cows, rice, and hay, though they would absolutely still take the cows, rice, and hay. They might be otherworldly agents of the night, but they weren't about to turn down free cows. Basically, Jata had done nothing wrong to anyone, and unless they had a reason, it would throw things out of balance to just knock him off without cause. The queen thought about the roadblock, perhaps a little annoyed that the witch assassins were suddenly getting so zen, and came up with an idea. Jato was out of control. He was a ruthless young man who would destroy the kingdom if he took over. If the witches needed proof, they should go see for themselves. If they went and picked vegetables from Jata's mother's garden, he wouldn't have any respect for their age or hunger. He would beat them all the same. The witches looked to each other and agreed. They would go to the vegetable patch the next evening at sundown and see just how vicious Jata could be. The queen mother smiled and told them that before they left, she would walk them down to the granary and stables herself so they could take the first part of their payment. She rose from bed and turned to get dressed, but when she turned back around, the witches had gone all Batman on her and disappeared into the darkness of the night. She was alone again in her room. The following evening, Jata was sweaty and lugging a bag full of dead animals alongside a sister named Kolinkan. He didn't want to walk by the vegetable garden, but it was his duty. Nearing the garden, he stopped dead in his tracks. There were nine elderly women pulling vegetables from the ground and stuffing their faces, taking as much as they could and shoving more into bags. One looked up when she saw Jata staring at them and screamed to the others, Oh no, ladies! Our thievery has been discovered. We, so many hungry and helpless old women, have been caught stealing right now. Let us all run away without remorse. Jata rolled his eyes as the nine old women bolted, but in a few bounds, he was standing in front of them, commanding them to stop. This was the garden of the wife of the late king. It belonged to everyone. The old woman stood stunned as he inspected their bags, seeing who needed more and topping them off. He told, no, commanded that the next time they had too little, they were to come back to this garden to restock. Tell their friends too, he and his mother could always plant more. 
He wouldn't have people starving when there was food right here. The women looked to each other in confusion. And finally, their leader spoke up with a sigh. She knew their latest performance of running away was amazing, but actually, they didn't eat his vegetables. It was just a test. In her anger, the Queen Mother had drawn the nocturnal powers against him. But even if they wanted to, there was nothing they could do against him now. He had disarmed them, and nothing could be done against a heart overflowing with kindness. From now on, they wouldn't harm him. They would protect him instead. Jata turned to his sister, Colin Khan, in disbelief, and caught her smiling. When they both turned back around, the witches had disappeared, again, into the darkness. Can, can you believe that? Jata said to his sister. She could. She'd been out walking last night and had heard the nine old ladies talking and rehearsing their plan in the garden. Colin Khan knew her brother, though, and never worried. She knew he would do the right thing. Still, the fact that the Queen Mother was hiring witch assassins was troubling, to say the least. They would let their mother decide what they should do next. Sogolon knew the Queen Mother. She hated the Queen Mother. As the first wife of the king, Sasma had made Sogolon's life terrible since the day she joined the household. However, there was no option. Sogolon didn't care about herself. She cared about her children and the children of the king's third wife who had died of an illness a couple years back. Sogolon had taken her son under her protection. Jata was now quickly growing stronger than all of them and very skilled in sorcery, though he was only 10. She knew as well as the witches that life hung on the thinnest of threads and everyone died eventually. For her family to live, they would need to go into exile. The family was busy preparing in secret when more bad news arrived. The queen mother had learned that her nine witch friends had skipped town. And so since she was in between magical attempted murders, she decided to take a quick pot shot at Jata. He woke up one morning to learn that his griot, the man matched to him by his father, and selected to be a source of wisdom when he took over the throne, had been called away to a foreign land by the king himself. Sogolon tried to keep him from going, but in his rage, the 10-year-old Jata pushed his way to appear before the 18-year-old King Dankaran. Even though he was a full head taller than the boy, Dankaran cowered. Jata glared. Dankaran had taken his inheritance, his name, and his throne, and even though Jata was leaving, he would return. Those words rocked Dankaran to his core. He tried to respond to the 10-year-old shouting veiled threats at him, but he couldn't. The boy spoke with such power, a power that Dankaran knew he would never have. Jata left, and Sasma found the king minutes later, sitting speechless. She tore into her son, saying that he wasn't a king, he wasn't even a man, if he was gonna let a boy talk to him like that. Dankaran clenched his jaw. It had been years of this. Years of his mother browbeating him. Years of hearing how amazing Jata was. How he was the king of prophecy. The story says Dankaran became a man of iron that day. He knew he would never be Jata, but he could be Jata's killer, and then find rest, knowing that his throne was secure. We'll follow Jata and his family into exile, but that will be right after this. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. 
No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Labyrinth loomed before Jatta. At just 14, he was the pride of his mother and the companion of the children of the king of Jujiba. They had been moving from place to place, avoiding the knives that lurked in the night. They had been in Jujiba for three months, longer than they had stayed in any other place. The king was a sorcerer, one who hid in the center of the labyrinth that was impenetrable unless you had been summoned by the king. And Jatta had just been summoned by the king. There was some form of sorcery at work in that place because Jatta walked straight to the center. In the months beforehand, he had heard stories of servants that fell out of favor with the king, getting lost and emerging days later, dehydrated and nearly dead. Stories of children who entered on a dare and never returned. The king sat in his chair, a black form hemmed by the fire behind him. Just the other day, Jatta's sister had bragged to the king's daughter, saying that her brother had also been trained in sorcery. He was the lion, Mali's prophesied king, the next day, Jatta had been startled awake by a message from the king's enclosure. The king wanted to see him. The old man chuckled and asked Jatta to sit for a game. And because when a sorcerer king who lives in the center of an impenetrable labyrinth asks you to sit, Jatta sat. Jatta could barely find the man's eyes, faintly glowing in the shadows of the fire. The king informed Jatta that it was a great pleasure of his to invite noteworthy guests to play a game of worry with him. If they didn't want to play the game, they were welcome to leave and try to find their way out. However, if they chose to play, and the king won, the guest would die. Should they get started? Jatta stopped him. What if Jatta won? He waited for the king to stop laughing, and held his gaze. Fair, if Jatta won, Jatta could have anything he desired. But that wouldn't happen. The king never lost. Should they get started? Jatta smiled. Absolutely. The game began and the king picked up his pebbles, dropping them in the pile, while singing that the game of war had been invented by a hunter, and that he was unbeatable. They called him the Exterminator King. Jatta matched him move for move, and sang a song of his own, saying that he had been there three months. Yet, he was only asked to play a game with the king today. That was because the gold arrived yesterday, and Jatta had arrived before yesterday. The king stopped playing, and dropped all of his pebbles as Jatta stood from the table. Who betrayed me? Jatta smiled. So he was right then. Sasima, the queen mother of Mali, had sent gold yesterday as payment for Jatta's death. The king sat trembling before the young man. This young boy knew of the trap, and still showed. Jatta made his next move, won the game, and thanked the king for three months of hospitality. Unlike the king, Jatta respected the relationship between host and guest but Jatta would return. Without looking back, Jatta turned and found his own way out of the labyrinth. Undeterred, Sasma continued making life difficult for Sogolon and her children, even those from far and wide that had previously come to Mali to celebrate Jatta when he first started walking, those who had initially supported the young lion would now only offer hospitality for a day or two. Facing the difficult choice of either having to kill their guests or offend Mali proved too much for most people. 
Jata's childhood friends, the young sons of kings who had come to hunt with him when he was a boy, lamented their father's cowardice, saying that when they were king, it will be different. Jata would clasp them on the shoulder with a smile. When he marched and returned to Mali, he would pass through and remember their words. They would walk together as kings and friends, and their enemies would tremble before them. Over the next few months, Sogolon and her children fell in with merchant caravans. And though it was dusty, they knew everyone in the group and kept their own identities hidden. They were safe. Carefully, they made their way to Ghana, where they presented themselves to that king, one who wanted to help them more than the others. He promised them safe passage to Mema, a kingdom beyond the land of Doe, past the Niger River, and far away from the Knives of Mali. Jata could see that the constant stress of the last four years had taken a toll on his mother. He agreed, and they joined the king of Ghana's armed caravan and headed north, far away from Mali. Around this time, Balafasike, Jata's griot, who had been sent away by the king before Jata himself left, was on the last leg of his journey. He, too, was in the region of Ghana, but far to the south. He had been asked by Dankaran via messenger to investigate rumors in the area. So he assembled a delegation and traveled to the kingdom of Salso. Salso was supposed to be a tiny, out-of-the-way town under the rule of the king of Ghana. Being close to Mali, the rumors had flooded across the border that something dark was growing in Salso, that there was a man, a sorcerer, who had seized an ancient throne and was harboring dark ambitions. Balafasike, Jata's griot, heard the clanging of hammers before they arrived at the border crossing, and then he was surprised. Border crossing? There was no border crossing. They were in the heart of Ghana. But men with iron spears being men with iron spears, Balafasike told him about his business, how he had been sent to speak with the man who called himself the King of Sasso, the Sorcerer King. The guards at the border smiled and waved the small caravan through. It was then that Balafasike saw the stronghold looming on the horizon. When he was much younger, his father had taken him by this area. Sasso was just a backwater village under the rule of the King of Ghana. Now, it had a stronghold larger than Mali. And that clanging, as the delegation from Mali approached, it only became louder, and it remained a mystery until they were taken up to the top of the walls. Balafasike looked out across a sea of smiths. Mali, the strongest kingdom in the region, had a hundred smiths, making swords, shields, armor, and arrows for the king. Looking out over the men sweating and hammering and grimacing, he knew there had to be a thousand smiths. Something was happening here. No tiny kingdom, no small town, had this type of power. He whispered a few words, and, using his magic, disappeared from the group. He sneaked through the smiths and found the Sorcerer King's Tower. On the top floor, the seventh story, Balafasike pushed open the last door. He had to will himself not to vomit. On the walls were tapestries made out of human skin. The room was little more than a deep pool with an altar in the middle. There, the earthenware jar was surrounded by nine heads. Balafasike covered his mouth. They were the heads of kings. The kingdom of Sasso had already been making war and had consumed its neighbors. Mali would be next if he didn't do something. It lived in the water, so Balafasike couldn't hear it approaching. He didn't see it until the massive snake, the basilisk, that guarded the inner sanctum of the sorcerer king, Sumeru Kante, began emerging. Balafasike caught sight of the snake the instant before it hissed and lunged. But that was enough. With his magic, 
he froze the snake mid-strike and used its body as a bridge over the water to investigate the rest of the room. He passed the heads. They represented powerful kingdoms. As powerful as Mali, he inspected the weapons decorating the walls, the three-edged knives, the curved swords. Then he noticed another platform. On it sat a drum. Balafasike could feel the magic pulsing from it. This was something special. He looked back at the preserved heads. He had an idea. As a griot and sorcerer, he had a love for music, and he knew that drums had power. He also knew it was a risk, but maybe the kings knew something. Maybe the dead could talk. Maybe they could tell him how to defeat Sumeru Kante. Balafasike began to play the drums, and slowly, the faces of the severed heads began to move. One by one, they blinked and gasped awake. It was working. Balafasike was about to ask them what had happened when he felt it. A grip like iron stayed his hand. He spun around, and Sumeru Kante, the Sorcerer King, stood behind him in his inner sanctum. As the nine kings died all over again, and the snake slid out of the spell, Sumeru Kante explained that there were ears that weren't meant to hear the music that the drum made, hands that weren't meant to play it. No matter how far away he was, he was connected to it. He knew when someone shouldn't be playing it. He let go of Balafasike's hand, and the young griot relaxed long enough to have the wind knocked out of him as he was shoved backwards into the water. The snake dove, and Balafasike felt it wrap around his body and bring him back to the surface. It brought him eye to eye with the sorcerer king, the untouchable king, as he was called. There, surrounded by his weapons and tapestries made of human skin, the sorcerer king spoke again. He was impressed by Balafasike. He was a cut above the other dignitaries that the kings had sent. Balafasike, being crushed by the snake, lost his nerve, and Sumeru Kante knew it. He smiled and told the young griot that he wouldn't die today, not unless he wanted to. Sumeru Kante had been searching for a griot for a long time, but there was no one he could quite trust to advise him and tell his story. Balafasike had broken into his sanctum, stopped the guardian, and managed to play his drum. He would never return to Mali because Balafasike would become his griot. Balafasike was about to say something along the lines of, I'll never join you, but the snake squeezed his ribs harder, forcing all the air out. Sumeru Kante clarified that it wasn't a request, it was a command. The alternative was being dragged down into the water and slowly consumed by a snake, and the sorcerer king would ensure that Balafasike stayed alive for that. Sumeru Kante knew that Balafasike didn't need time to reconsider. He was a smart young man. He knew his only choice was that he had no choice. The snake dumped Balafasike on the platform before the sorcerer king, and Sumeru Kante extended a hand and helped his new griot to his feet. Outside, the delegation from Mali had seen all it needed to, and the Soso warriors made sure that they saw all they would ever see. All but one lay dead on the wall, the last one beaten and tossed off of it. The man's bones broke as he tumbled to the ground. He was to go back to Mali and tell King Dankarand that they would kill him and burn his city unless he submitted. The surviving member of the Mali delegation limped off into the night to warn his king of a threat that would consume them all.
It was three years later. An 18-year-old Jata was leading warriors into battle alongside his half-brother. They had found the land of Mema, far beyond the land of Doe, where the sorcerer king was only a rumor, a boogeyman that haunted the stories of children. The king of Ghana had sent Jata and his mother to Mema for two reasons. Soglan needed to recover from the stress of constantly fearing the usurper's knives. And the king of Mema didn't have a son. He didn't have any children for that matter. He was looking for an heir. And the king of Ghana had taken a liking to the boy named Jata, the young lion, this king in exile. And it went exactly as the king of Ghana hoped. Jata proved himself on the battlefield and in the courts. He became a favorite of not just the king of Mema, but the people of Mema as well. It took three years, but Jata worked his way up to be the king's viceroy, the one who ruled when the king was away. The story says that everyone bowed before him and he was greatly loved. And those who didn't love him feared him and his voice carried authority. Finally, the king of Mema met with the leaders of the army and they all agreed that it was time. It was time for Jata to take his place, for the man who obviously had such a great destiny before him to reach out and claim it. He was announced as heir to the king. The people wept among the ashes of Niani, the place that had once been the magnificent capital city of Mali. It started three years ago, when a member of the Mali delegation to Soso died, warning King Dankaran of the Sorcerer King. King Dankaran, at the advice of his mother and advisors, immediately submitted to Sumeru Kante. Mali became a client kingdom and started paying for the warriors that kept them prisoners. Over time, the people began to chafe under the new rule, and even Dankaran began to grow angry. The resistance found fuel when the nephew of the Sorcerer King defected. The Sorcerer King, husband of 300 wives, apparently desired his smart and skilled sorceress of a niece. He captured and imprisoned her, and her husband fled to Mali, the most powerful of the kingdoms, under the thumb of the untouchable king. Dankaran sent warriors, and the resistance sent word to the other cities and their remaining kings. While the sorcerer king had never truly been challenged after Mali submitted, that didn't mean he stopped building his war machine. Not tolerating any level of dissent, he didn't listen to their pleas or entertain any idea of autonomy. Instead, he sent his own warriors and burned Niani, the capital city of Mali and birthplace of Jata, to the ground. Dankaran, it turned out, fled south before the fighting even started. There was, however, a group that did not want to follow their cowardly king into exile, who didn't want to abandon their homes, even though they were nothing more than ruins and ash. The resistance that remained in the ruins consulted seers and soothsayers, who said that for Mali to rise from the ashes of defeat, the rightful king the man with two names would have to return. The elders, the people who had once sat on the council, knew who the soothsayer spoke of. They spoke of Magan Jata, the name given to him by his father, of Sogolan Jata, the shameful name given to him by the people that hated him, but the title he claimed for his own. They spoke of Sun Jata, the lion child. Two months later, Kolan Khan, Jata's sister, was in the Mema marketplace. She perused the goods when her eyes lighted on something that she only half remembered from home, the baobab leaves. Here in the north, they hardly grew them. So Kolan Khan asked where the merchants had come from, and they froze 
the young woman's accent. She came from Mali. She was the right age, and she looked like the little girl who used to run errands for Sogolon. The merchants dropped everything and bowed before their princess. An hour later, sitting before Sogolon, Jatta, and the rest of the children from King Magan Kanfada's second and third wives, the merchants explained that their plan had worked. The merchants had set out in all directions from Niani, the city that used to be Mali's capital. They had to try to find the king of prophecy in secret, because, well, nothing is more stereotypically tantalizing to an evil sorcerer king than killing the hero that was destined to destroy him. Jatta stopped the merchants. What did they mean when they said Niani used to be Mali's capital? The merchants hung their head. They meant exactly that. Niani was no longer the capital, because Niani didn't exist. It was nothing but ruins and ash. That was why they were here. Sumeru Kante, the untouchable sorcerer king, had destroyed their home. But the war raged on. His nephew led the resistance. The merchants saluted Jatta. They said that Dankaran, the usurper, had abandoned them. It was time for Sunjata, the rightful king, to come home. His hour had come. The words of the prophets would come to pass. The throne of his fathers awaited him. And that was when Sogolon collapsed. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll see how it all ends. Okay, this is the last time I'll mention it in the podcast. Voting closes soon. But if you haven't already voted and want to support us in the show, please go to vote.mythpodcast.com to be redirected to the Webby voting page. There's also a link in the show notes. Thank you so much for your support. The creature this time is the Ethiopian dragon, from Ethiopia. Well, it's actually from the stories of Ethiopia that Europeans told in the Middle Ages. It dates as far back as ancient Greece, where there were rumors of a ferocious, 180-foot-long monster with double wings that was actually pretty cool towards humans. The Ethiopian dragons preferred elephants. Apparently, humans and dragons of Africa would live in peace together. The humans hardly made enough of a meal, and then they would band together and attack the dragons. It probably wasn't even worth the hassle. The elephants never forgot, but that didn't matter if you ate them. Apparently, elephants in Ethiopia are kind of rare, and the dragons, getting hungry, would find it difficult to fly hundreds of miles to maybe find a meal. They found a solution in tearing up some trees out of the ground, getting more hungry dragon buddies, and then wrapping themselves up as a dragon raft, taking a nap, and drifting down the coast until they found a meal. So yeah, the dragon, mythology's greatest monster other than Zeus, can be a friend to humans. The Ethiopian dragon occasionally hunted for humans too. If it caught something that wasn't an elephant, it would just drop it off at a nearby village. And it doesn't steal or sit on massive gold hordes and deliver sociopathic speeches like Smog. But because we're humans and we can't have nice things, we absolutely found a way to ruin this relationship. I don't know how he discovered this, but Ethiopian dragons do have a special stone that gives humans the ability to fly, grants us special powers, and heals illnesses. And the dragons would have been more than happy to give the stone to humans if it wasn't part of their brains. If a village came down with a plague, the village elder would approach the dragon with the village's best elephant that had been heavily dosed with a sedative because it's not even as simple as just killing the dragon and digging the gemstone out of its brain. The stone only works if it's removed while the dragon is alive. So not only do you have to hope you got the dosage right to knock out a 180 foot long dragon, but then you need to act quickly 
and do some dragon brain surgery and gently remove the stone. And then, I guess, just move, leave forever, because there's no way this ends well for you. When that dragon wakes up after a light lobotomy with a massive headache, and you're just zipping around the sky with a piece of its brain. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes. Today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.